Bill Joyce is a very old friend of Rare Book School. He's lectured to it and also been part of the program at the School of Library Service at Columbia University, once upon a time the host institution for Rare Book School. It's a great pleasure for us to be at the University of Virginia, and it's a great pleasure to have Bill Joyce here to speak to you this evening. Bill Joyce is Associate University Librarian, I always get this wrong, Associate University Librarian for Special Collections at Princeton. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. It's a particular pleasure for me to be here this evening and to participate in a small way in this inaugural effort of Rare Book School in its new venue. As I hope my talk this evening might suggest, Rare Book School is a terribly important resource to rare book and manuscript curators, indeed to special collection librarians everywhere. And I wish Terry and his summertime inspiration, Rare Book School, a long and happy tenure here in Charlottesville. I should also like to offer an emendation to the title of my presentation this evening, From the Margins to the Center, The Coming Mainstreaming of Rare Books and Special Collections. It seemed appropriate when I first proposed it to Terry in an email message, but on reflection, instead of being suggestive, even evocative, uh, it now seems, well, it seems ponderous. And so I propose, instead of the uh, phrase coming mainstreaming, I ask you to substitute in the title a more adequate expression, the words future role. If not an elegant substitute, it is descriptive. And now that I've delivered myself of that piece of business, let me get to the matter at hand. The mission of research universities is the creation and transmission of knowledge. And as we all know, the library has been, at least until now, the heart of the university, nurturing the exchange of ideas that is the very essence of scholarship. In his notes on Virginia, Thomas Jefferson aptly describes scholarship as, quote, a, pa a patient pursuit of facts and cautious combination and comparison of them is the drudgery to which man is subjected if he wishes to attain sure knowledge. Jefferson may very well have been right about the facts, but the advent of technological change has taken much of the drudgery away from the cautious combination and comparison of those facts and altered substantially the shape of the scholarly world in which so many of us were educated. Tonight, you will hear a report from the field about the seismic shifts in research libraries and their implications for those of us who work in one way or other with rare books, manuscripts, and other original research material. Research libraries, like banks and insurance companies, and other industries that process large amounts of data, are among the most automated of American institutions. For example, we are all familiar with bank teller machines and their extension into daily transactions, such as those at supermarkets when we purchase our groceries. Online library catalogs provide a similar service in facilitating access to library holdings. And now, like automated bank teller machines, computer applications and libraries are expanding their functionality in a number of ways. And permit me to enumerate just a few. First, databases such as Facts and Finder and Carl Uncover can now provide summaries of articles in academic serials. And delivery of the document itself within 24 hours can be provided by services such as Facts and Express. 
the serials themselves are beginning to come online, such as in the Dutch publisher Elsevier's Tulip Project, though few such serials as yet possess peer review. Or there is the likelihood that the in inclusion of indexes of books in library databases may not be far away. Or there is growing availability of texts online. Witness the recent creation at, to pick two institutions or three institutions at random, Princeton, in partnership with nearby Rutgers, of the Center for Electronic Texts in the Humanities. And here at Virginia, you have the Institute for Advanced Technology in the Humanities. There are, in addition, ambitious individual projects, such as the Electronic Purse Consortium at Georgetown, the Dante Project at Dartmouth, and the granddaddy of them all, and now financially beleaguered, the Thesaurus Linguae Grecae Project at the University of California at Irvine. As the cost of interlibrary loan transactions continues to rise, one report estimated that it costs $30 per transaction interest quickens in accelerating the development of workstations that might facilitate the transmission of documents electronically and thereby reduce the substantial cost of those transactions. The development of the Aerial Document Delivery Service by the Research Libraries Group is one such example of ways of making interlibrary loan transactions more cost efficient as well as providing faster service through technology. Indeed, there is talk now of the virtual library, an array of electronic texts that might ex replicate the function of traditional libraries, only do it online, and will likely even reach far beyond the resources of any one library, and provide access to research resources in a constellation of libraries and other research repositories around the world. As a recent report on scholarly communication notes, the new technologies allow the possibility of uncoupling ownership from access, the material object from its intellectual content. In the ultimate virtual library, as one report would have it, the researcher has, quote, access to universal knowledge without delay at his or her desk and an array of services encompassing electronic document delivery, online journals, full text databases, end user searching and training, network access, and OPAC enhancements." End quote. An interesting application of this electronic capability to the research library of the future is the Kodak Library Image Consortium Project in which Cornell University, the University of Southern California, the Eastman Kodak Company, and the Commission on Preservation and Access are collaborating to create an on-screen access to thousands of historical photographs, paintings, and other images. Sound fanciful? Perhaps. But there are commentators, such as the inventor and artificial intelligence researcher Raymond Kurzweil, who writes of electronic real-time, that is, simultaneous language translation, in an environment where the paper book will be replaced by the virtual book paid for by the person minute rather than by the copy as the book and paper documents begin in Kurzweil's phrase, a rapid descent into obsolescence. Other, more traditional humorists, such as the novelist Robert Coover, are equally committed to the online environment of the future. Coover speaks of the end of books 
in the context of a new kind of fiction with a, quote, rhythmic text looping on itself in patterns and layers that gradually accrete meaning, just as the passage of time and events does in one's lifetime, end quote. Yet other observers envision that libraries may be recast as purveyors of information and services in electronic form that may indeed supersede the traditional library and allow researchers of the future the type of access via workstations that will markedly reduce, if not obviate altogether, the need for trips to the library. Special collections repositories are no less affected than any other type of library by the expansion of technology. More and more antiquarian and rare books are available in library databases or special files, such as the 18th century short title catalog or the incunable short title catalog. While the remarkable expansion of the archives and manuscripts control and the visual materials files indicate that the bulk of our research or cultural resources may also soon be accessible via these online resources. Moreover, texts are beginning to find their way into electronic databases. Recently, I had occasion to see at the Archives of the Indies in Seville, Spain, a project that has already scanned into electronic format some nine million pages, including roughly 15,000 maps in color out of a total archival repository holding of about 88 million pages. These images are accessible at workstations on which documents may be read, their texts enhanced by manipulation of the images after access is afforded through use of the hierarchy of existing finding aids also developed uh, over the years by the staff of the archives. They've just signed a, another contract for, another, for the next three-year implement uh, for several billion pesetas, which took me a little while to convert three and a half million dollars. And um, they intend to see this project through to its completion, and they've made extraordinary progress. Another example, but one of many, is that the work of Herman Melville is being put online in a hypertext program to permit explication of texts in context, all of which is designed to facilitate access to and understanding of the work of that great author. All of this promises to be a boon to the researcher of the future, even in the relatively underfunded humanities, which in terms of resources lag far behind the natural and applied sciences in terms of support for research. The humanities, the principal academic constituency of research libraries, that may be an obvious point, but I think it can never be stated too frequently or too baldly, and we always need to keep that in mind. The humanities now claim less than 1%, less than 1% of federal funds available for research and development. Not for nothing did Mark Robert Maxwell acquire scientific and technological journals rather than history and theory or the journal of modern history. What happens in the future when the National Science Foundation's subsidy of the internet and related networks of computers is transformed into other mechanisms of funding might, however, create shock among those humanists whose use of those resources does not entail awareness of how it is all to be paid for. There are huge quantities of data being put online, even in the humanities, and their machine-assisted manipulation is an inestimable benefit to all researchers, even humanists. 
that such manipulation can occur in faculty offices or even in the homes of those researchers fortunate enough to be plugged into the electronic environment only makes the situation that much more astonishing. Indeed, the new te information technology not only facilitates the transmission of knowledge, but also forms and sustains the creation of new knowledge communities, both inside universities and outside, in granting agencies, disciplinary study centers, and the business world, however fragile its funding may be. To be sure, there are those who fear this electronic environment, who fear the text encoding initiative, TEI, and its ensuing product of textual tags, the standard generalized markup language, or SGML, and other online developments as a threat to the very future of special collections, and believe that we will be further isolated and marginalized in research libraries, archives, historical societies, even museums, as researchers take to their workstations, there to manipulate happily heretofore inaccessible files for which access will be an answer to their wildest fantasies about research in their chosen disciplines. Others are fearful that the current drive to place so many resources online will adversely affect the nation's research institutions and will wreak havoc on research libraries generally and rare book libraries in particular by altering the ways in which managers look on the codex book collection. According to the vision of one commentator, a university professor of bibliography at a major university in the Upper South. Do we still call it that, by the way? Library collections will increasingly be viewed as resources of convenience to be used and discarded without remorse, while rare book libraries will, in this perspective, look less like libraries and more like museums of the history of communication, downsized to be sure, where patrons will look at books but not read them. If collections are so readily discardable, they will in fact be discarded, and rare book collections will face large-scale deaccessioning. Predictions of the hegemony of the virtual research library of the future are, however, vastly overdrawn. Even if the rosiest scenarios were to become real, the virtual research library of the future will not display special collections libraries. Indeed, as Stanley and Katz president of the American Council of Learned Societies has noted, and I quote, a long-term advantage of the rare books library is that it cannot be easily distributed, that it will remain at the university's center, at least physically. And here it proceeds from a, from a position of strength, for the rare books library is increasingly the last realm of the scholar-librarian and the artifact-dependent scholar as the library as an institution loses its intellectual authority on campus, as I think it has done to a considerable extent already, this is Stan Katz talking, a reconceptualized specialized collections center and a transformed special collections scholar librarian emerge as significant and creative elements in the reconfigured university of the next century. Ironically, the rare books operation may move from the snob periphery to the intellectual core of the university as it behaves less as inventory than as utility, as it becomes more intellectually proactive in its behavior." End quote. Even if a hierarchical structure of electronic access were developed to permit researchers to proceed seamlessly 
from catalog entry to summary of the contents to digitized texts distributed to whomever wanted it whenever they needed it. Scenarios of the advent of such a virtual library complete unto itself are difficult, if not impossible, to imagine. The very artifactuality of primary source materials would appear to be a central concern, not only of researchers, but also of curators and all those eager to apprehend the materiality of the past. If not necessarily through regarding library materials as museum objects. Michael Ryan, now at the University of Pennsylvania, writes of the implied tension between library materials and museum objects, and I quote, the very mention of the word museum conjures up a cluster of associations that run counter to the utilitarian, service-oriented, client-centered ethic of librarianship. The prospect of presiding over a department whose collections have devolved into museum pieces implies curating an inventory of inertia of objects passively regarded rather than actively used, a context at once intellectually and culturally remote from the research and teaching cores of academic life. On the other hand, the notion of the library as museum does at least direct our attention to the status and value of our collections as artifacts, literally as objects of knowledge. Thinking about library collections as museum collections means taking their materiality seriously, not only as a conservational issue, but more importantly as an interpretive and intellectual one." End quote. To paraphrase Stan Katz, the special collections center, reconceptualized or not, will serve as the repository of cultural artifacts to be studied by humanists and all those whose investigation entails use of books, documents, and images and even, increasingly, three-dimensional objects. This repository, real and not virtual, will serve as an integral element in the reconfigured research world of the 21st century. There are several factors why I believe this will be the case. First, principally because the humanistic disciplines have developed new definitions of what and who is appropriate for study by extending the definitions across space, time, and culture, as well as through the class structure of society. There is neither world enough, nor time enough, nor money enough for humanists to expect online access for the broad array of these sources that support current research in the humanities. Indeed, new source materials, ephemera, broadsides, comic books, cookbooks, children's books, prints and drawings, and even museum objects. And just last Friday, I was contacted concerning our prospective interest in Einstein's brain. All of these things are now very much at the center of research in the humanities, which has simultaneously become cross-disciplinary as it has become multidisciplinary. Even if consensus could be found to identify the most used source materials in a given discipline, imagine the conflict over which discipline could get to have its source materials entered into a database first, or at all. In a time of shrinking resources available to institutions of higher education generally, and research libraries in particular, it is hard enough even to expand electronic bibliographic access to the articles in print journals. 
It is impossible to get excited about doc document delivery services even when the bibliographic tools to identify the documents are lacking. Second, there are additional serious problems with the copyright protection afforded software and other electronic products as well as unpublished materials. Many of these problems stem from the simple fact that copyright enforcement had been conceived at the point of creation, the printing press. The advent of the computer and the ubiquitous printer, not to mention the rapidly proliferating scanner, has meant that copyright enforcement is literally in the horse and buggy era, while the distributed production of electronic texts has made copyright all the more difficult to enforce. There appear to be copyright problems attached to the use of online texts in reconstructed or edited works, beginning with the very idea of even copywriting such established texts as, for example, the Thoreau edition published at the Princeton University Press and vetted by the Center for Scholarly Editions. Recently, in 1991, there was a Supreme Court decision, Feist Publications versus the Rural Telephone Services Company, which would seem to point uh, to some difficulty to copyright, copywriting these established texts. The court ruled in favor of the telephone company, which simply took edited text and redistributed online because the text had been in the public domain. In addition, an additional pediment, rather, to the unchecked creation of textual databases is the new restrictions imposed by recent court decisions on the fair use by researchers of previously unpublished texts. You're all familiar with the case involving J.D. Salinger and his biographer, and there have been other cases as well involving the biography of Richard Wright in one case. And all of this will have a chilling effect on the rapidity with which this material finds its way into electronic form. Third, the advent of automation and its requirements for consistency, regularity, and definition of so much of its process has promoted a convergence of methodology between rare books, librarians, and archivists, between special collections and general collections, cataloging staffs, and between special collections and museum curators as well. The use of the archives and manuscripts control file in the MARC format, notably in the Research Libraries Information Network and the OCLC databases, has led to the adoption by archivists of Library of Congress subject headings and participation in the Library of Congress name authority file work, not to mention adoption of a great many other cataloging conventions that are required if MARC cataloging is to be successfully undertaken. I might add here to the veterans of intramural battles among archivists over the adoption of the MARC bibliographic format as a cataloging standard. Uh, these developments are remarkable, and the distance that has been covered is truly extraordinary. And this goes maybe over the last 15 years or so. But the influence has also been reciprocal. If archivists have adopted a great many of the cataloging conventions of librarians, so have librarians begun to question the utility of some of their own cataloging conventions. Librarians have adopted, moreover, even as they acknowledge its archival origins, the practice of cataloging at the collection level as practiced by archivists. This technique should be particularly helpful in assisting research libraries such as the Library of Congress in attacking their daunting arrearages of uncatalogued books and other materials. 
Meanwhile, museum curators have much to teach research librarians about the artifactuality of their collections, as I noted earlier, if librarians have in turn much to impart concerning the classification and description of museum artifacts. It would be a mistake, however, to conclude that the mutual adoption of one another's cataloging principles and conventions heralds the dawn of a new era of arrearages and free of arrearages and unprocessed collections. In a recent sobering essay, David Bierman has argued that archivists have done themselves, not to mention their research constituencies, a terrible disservice by adopting methods of managing their holdings that are severely disproportionate to the amount of work that remains to be done. He notes that the volume of archival accessions alone might warrant employment in the U.S. for as many as 10,000 archivists if we are to maintain descriptive control of these records by current principles. Well, 10,000 archivists represents roughly five times the current individual membership in SAA, to give you an example. Fourth, and decisively in my view, the reason for the persistence of special collections will be because many humanistic sources cannot be reformatted into a digitized or scanned format without loss of critical research information in at least some instances. I do not mean to argue here that all discrete sources in the humanities must, seem, must be seen to have particular characteristics in the original format that must be maintained. That is manifestly untrue, though certainly there are well-known observers who argue otherwise. Rather, my point is that there is information of research importance in some, if not in every item, that simply cannot be reformatted without loss of critically important research information. Examples might include watermarks and paper analysis, virtually any information in color because of the lack of permanent uh, color dialogues, uh, pasteovers, the presence of three-dimensional information such as seals or embossed printing, information on the printing or dust jackets of books or the mat of a print, writing too lightly recorded to be included in a scanned version of a source item or any of many other possibilities. Certainly, one implication uh, of this argument is that it is essential for the staff of libraries holding such materials to be trained in settings just like this one here at Rare Book School in the management of the physical attributes, format, collation, types, paper, binding, illustrations, seal stamps, and a great many others of their holdings at least as thoroughly as they are in understanding the contents and the context of the creation of these source materials. As research continues to broaden its focus to include a greater variety of, of source materials, especially images, in a greater variety of formats, the role of the research librarian becomes even more important, even as library schools close and the federal government continues in its effort to downgrade librarians in the federal GS series. At a time when knowledge of automation and management skills offer mobility for librarians, the need of our research constituencies indicate that librarians knowledgeable about the physical attributes of a variety of source materials, as well as having command of the latest computer technologies so as to develop new and better modes of access, will make that librarian very much in demand. Research librarians will also need to be more familiar with the interdisciplinary research and strategies of access 
as they become participants in a new partnership of knowledge creation. What I do not mean to argue here is any form of special collections mysticism. While there are those who would argue that there are certain qualities and sources in their original formats, their ta tactile properties, for example, or their mustiness that should not be lost, it seems to me that our emphasis in research repositories must be on research values, not some vague qualities that cannot be described, explained, and analyzed. Reliance on such properties as ambience, the building materials, the furnishings of our rooms also trivializes and diminishes our work at our peril. It's the sources that we have to master. In the end, of course, it is the collections and our ability first to acquire them and then to promote access and to nurture effective research use of them that define our success. To the extent that the collections attract use, they enable us to strengthen our claim for staffing, space, and resources to manage our collections through building alliances with constituencies, especially the researchers, who will serve as our friends. We might start by working with our colleagues, the directors of the research libraries. For the most part, for most of us, the parent organization. My former New York Public Library colleague, David Stamm, now librarian at Syracuse University, observed in his recent history of the Association of Research Libraries, that's ARL, that, and I quote, our, that is the directors of the ARL libraries, biggest failure has been in the area that most distinguishes research libraries. To a very large extent, our statistics measure the products of research, not the raw materials of research the primary sources which make research, particularly in the humanities and the social sciences, possible. As we move inexorably toward greater electronic access for more and more of the standard secondary literature, primarily in the English language, supporting plain vanilla research in more ways than one, and diverting more and more of our resources from what was previously our mission, the computer will represent the great leveler among libraries making the materials accessible through it equally available to the great and to the puny. But it will be the great undigested collections of primary sources, collections unlikely in my view to reach electronic formats that will distinguish research libraries from all those libraries, all those other libraries rather, with or without walls, an opportunity to reshape and enlarge our noble purpose. Thank you.